We have a delightful experience ahead of us. We're starting a new occasional sermon series. So this will be something like throughout the year, maybe once a month, once every five weeks or so. We're inviting someone, um, my, our rabbi friend, Rabbi Mark Kinzer, said that there's a tradition in Judaism that when uh, Moses received the law on Sinai, all the Jewish people were, were present with Moses or in the loins of Moses or in the wombs of the women who were there, and that each Jewish soul, as they are born, has like a special insight on Torah, on the law of Moses, which it is their privilege and responsibility over their lifetime to reveal, such that if Moses himself were there, Moses would learn something from that Jewish soul and the insight they have gained through their unique life experiences. So we're kind of taking that idea and we're applying to it, like invite people who have like one really good sermon because they've had to live through something or they've had to think deeply about something and uh, give us that one sermon that um, their own life has led them to. But today we're starting off with a climate scientist who is going to speak about the intersection of faith and science. You may know that um, religious affiliation at the high school teacher level is about the same as the general population. But then as you go up the kind of elite food chain status of science, that religious affiliation uh, is, uh, uh, decreases. So if you're teaching um, science in an elite institution like the University of Michigan, that has like the smallest percentage of religiously affiliated people because of all the history of, of science faith conflicts over the, over the years. So when you have a scientist at an elite institution who is like, process that and figure it out. How does, like, how does my understanding of science and how does faith, how do those intersect and go together and how do they inform each other? Then, you, well, you want to perk up and listen to what they have to say. So, and it wasn't an interesting our reading from Thomas who wanted evidence. Give me the evidence, you know. He was the scientist in the gospel. So, welcome, won't you, Mike Lemon, our own Mike Lemon. big paper clip on today. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm a professor in the Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering Department uh, at the University of Michigan. Uh, I'm on the, yeah, that's a tortuous title, isn't it? It's, uh, oh my gosh. <clears throat> yeah, we just uh, redid it from a previously former tortuous title. Uh, I'm on this, I, I teach a few climate classes uh, there, but I, really my research interest is on the space side of that. Uh, I like to study things like the aurora. Have, has anyone seen the northern lights? All right, quite a few of you. Yeah, occasionally we get to see it down here in, uh, in southern Michigan. Uh, usually you might have to go up north a little bit in order to in order to see it. Um, but I guess one thing, you know, he's sort of given this, um, you know, highfalutin start here. I just like to say, start off with one thing. I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you might think it's marriage that's trained me to know that I'm wrong a lot. Um, and of course that, you know, that's part of it. But uh, so let me tell you a story, a quick story. Um, early in our marriage, I did something really wrong. Um, <laughs> I was putting away the dishes from the dishwasher, and you know, you're, I, I had about half the cups done, 
And I grabbed a mug and, uh-oh, there's still coffee in there. They weren't clean. <laughs> Nobody had run the dishwasher. <laughs> I went through about all five stages of grief right there in the, in the span of about 30 seconds. Um, you know, first there was denial. No, it was run. It's just this one cup. You know, <laughs> there was... Um, uh, uh, after, after denial, there was anger, you know, who didn't start the thing, you know, yeah, then there was bargaining, oh, they aren't that dirty, come on, it's, I, it's okay, you know, then there was depression, I'm bad at adulting, I'm going to get us all sick, and finally acceptance, okay, I have to, I, I can undo this, but by that time, my short-term memory had already cleared, I had no idea what cups I had put up there, so it was, it was the whole thing, yeah, um, <clears throat> So uh, throughout this rapid fire process, though, there was one uh, emotion going uh, undercurrent, you know, an undercurrent of embarrassment, because I knew it was me who forgot to hit that, because there was a space, and that one space was enough for one more plate, <clears throat> and I, uh, yeah, so there was that, yeah. So, um, so I give a lot of credit to Ginger, my wife, uh, for many aspects of who I am, but yeah, uh, comfort with being wrong uh, is actually not one of them. I give that to, uh, to my career in science, actually. Uh, science doesn't get mentioned very much in most churches. Uh, some churches actually are rather hostile to science, and most of them just ignore it. Don't even mention science, uh, for the most part. But not this church. Uh, Ken and Emily, when they uh, established Blue Ocean Faith Ann Arbor, uh, did something rather bold, and they put science right next to Scripture. I don't know if you know this, but right here at the beginning of our church, they had a poster with this slogan on it. A Jesus, Spirit, Scripture, Science, All People Friendly Church. And that, that quote with, uh, with spirit, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for doing that. And that quote, you know, with, uh, with uh, scripture and science right next to each other is still on our webpage. It's actually the first line of the Our Story page if you, if you go to the website. Um, so today I tell you I'd, like to, I'd like to tell you about what it means for me to go to a church that's science-friendly. Um, but first, this is also, uh, you know, climate science. It's an environmental pitch, so... Are you familiar with the children's book, The Lorax? Yeah, okay. So here's a sad but powerful quote from it. Yes, I am the Lorax who speaks for the trees, which you seem to be chopping as fast as you please. But I'm also in charge of the brown barbalutes who play in the shade in their barbalute suits and happily live eating truffula fruits. Now, thanks to your hacking my trees to the ground, there's not enough truffula fruit to go round. They loved living here, but I can't let them stay. They'll have to find food, and I hope that they may. Good luck, boys, good luck. And he sent them away. When was the first time you heard about the Lorax? For me, it was in grad school. Yeah, I, I, had, I, do, I have no memory of the Lorax growing up uh, in that particular Dr. Seuss book. Um, but uh, Ginger, uh, introduced me to it, and she's a very strong advocate of the environment. And when she heard that I hadn't um, read it, we were dating at the time, she got it in my hands the next time uh, we were together. Uh, and ever since then, this book has actually had a profound influence uh, on me, and including my understanding of Christianity, uh, because I think that we're called to be advocates for the environment. Uh, so that's a point I'd like to make today. Uh, 
so some backstory, some really, a really quick version of my history with uh, Christianity. I grew up Lutheran, um, and I went through the motions of uh, going through Sunday school and going through confirmation, and I was a good Christian up through junior high. Uh, we had junior high, not middle school. <clears throat> uh, and in high school, though, I really started to drift away from that, and by late high school, I declared myself an atheist. Um, and why is that? Uh, science. I was lumping science right, I was lumping Christianity right there next to Greek mythology. Um, uh, I, like many other uh, lovers of modern science, had the notion that uh, further advancements would, would make God irrelevant, and that God was just there to the gaps of the fabric and the big how things work quilt, and uh, I, you know, I fast-tracked that, seeing the future that, well, we'll fill these gaps in that quilt, and and took out God. But I didn't stay that way. I eventually declared myself wrong. And, uh, and in my college years and, and young adulthood, I slowly came back to Christianity. Uh, and my introduction to the Lorax then, in early grad school, was, was right in the middle of this progression. Um, so why shift back to Christianity? Uh, I applied, uh, I'm a bit of a nerd this way, I applied the scientific method to my faith. Um, so a, a really quick you know, thing of what is the scientific method. Step one, you see something strange, something you don't know how to explain. Step two, you look it up. Uh, maybe somebody else has already explained this thing. So you, you talk to other people, you read, um, and eventually if you find the answer, you're done. That's as far as it goes, step two. But if you don't, then you move on to step three. You formulate a guess of how this might work. And uh, it's an educated guess because you're thinking about this, uh, but it's, it, it's this guess, we call it a hypothesis. And then you move on to step four, which is design an experiment to test that guess. And that experiment could be deriving new equations, it could be running numerical simulations, it could be making observations in the lab or in the field, but you do some test that, uh, that, that tries to see is that guess right. And if the guess is right, step five, publish. <laughs> you, uh, you move on. You take claim credit for that new understanding. Um, if not, then you go to step six, which is toss it out. You actually toss out your guess. You don't cling to it. You've proven yourself wrong, or at least, you know, at that time with the evidence you have. And so you don't cling to it. You, you toss it out. And you go back to step three, and you make a new guess. Uh, so making a living out of applying the scientific method uh, you're wrong a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I feel stupid and inadequate often <laughs> um, as I go through this. Depression is actually common among grad students because this is the first time often when those smart people encounter a thing where you're asked to do some original research and you don't know how and there isn't a good answer for it and you feel stupid and inadequate and, and, and it's the first time some are experiencing that. Um, there are lots of times where I've had to put aside that guess. I can't, I, I can't make it right. I can't come up with the right guess or I can't come up with the right experiment. Um, so, uh, or sometimes later, other people prove me wrong. You know, new evidence comes out, new, new measurements, new whatever. And, uh, and so I have to be okay with changing my mind. Uh, and so on Christianity, I did just that. I changed my mind, deciding that I wanted it back in my life. So first, there was a strange thing of a lot of close friends being Christians, and even in the don't got time for church world of college, um, I noticed that there were 
that these people are often the nicer ones in the group, not the, not the arrogant jerks. And so I thought, okay, what made them different? And so I thought, is it Christianity? I want to find out. Um, so second, I was also learning a lot more about the physical world and that there is some parts of science that are really weird. Um, quantum mechanics, just for one. Um, yeah, people are nodding. You know, so there's this thing called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is you can't know a super tiny uh, subatomic particle, you can't know its position and velocity within some combined error. So it's kind of like a, a balloon where you squeeze one, you know, it's filled and there's a little crimp in the middle. And you squeeze one side and the other side inflates. And you squeeze the other, and so, you know, and as you, as you improve the error over here and you get this better and better, the other side gets worse and worse. There, there's a fixed amount of error in there. And so uh, what it means is that the, the equations of quantum mechanics, you cannot solve exactly. Yeah. The best you can do is a spread of possibilities and say, well, something in here is right. So it's, it's inherently chaotic and uh, unknowable uh, what the exact answer is. Um, and it also matters how you measure it. Uh, things can change in quantum mechanics. And so this is the whole, is light a wave or a particle conundrum? The answer is yes, both. <laughs> uh, and so, um, so yeah, so there was that. Uh, so the bigger truth that I was learning in there was this. There are things out there that couldn't be explained by science. There, there's uncertainty in there. And so I started to think maybe there are some aspects of human nature uh, and our interactions with each other that are beyond scientific interaction or uh, scientific explanation. Um, and so with these strange things, I applied the scientific method. Uh, I talked to a lot of people. Um, I talked to my fraternity brothers. Uh, thank you to the Pikes of Roseholman uh, who were there. And uh, a couple of my childhood friends, I'd especially like to say thanks to Mike Fulton and Christy Reekman-Munt, <clears throat> if either of you are watching. Um, Ginger really brought me back uh, on this uh, point of, of being able to embrace Christianity. I also had a burgeoning uh, liberal political philosophy at that time, and, and Ginger brought me a long way to show me that I could mesh those two. Um, I also like to read a lot of books, and so, like the Lorax, that was one of those books, but we'll come back to that one in just a minute. Um, I read some young earth creationist books. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to see what this was about. Um, and it really just didn't mesh with my understanding of, of who God was. Um, for instance, young earth creationists explain uh, redshift, astronomical redshift, uh, which is how we know that the universe is, is about 14 billion years old. We see these stars and the redshift, they're flying away from us, and the ones farther out have different redshifts. Um, and they claim that God put the redshift there six or 8,000 years ago so that it looks that way. Yeah, exactly. That is not compatible with a compassionate God to me. Uh, so I didn't buy it, yeah. I also read sections of the Bible hoping for clarity, but I wasn't getting it. Um, things, I was still reading the Bible a bit too literally, and it was an all or nothing thing. It's like, if they can't get Genesis 1 right, you know, how can they, how can they get the rest of, you know, I, and I kept reading it in a modern context and thinking, oh my gosh, this is, you know, there's no way that I would, I would you know, slaughter the town or whatever, you know, the, the, some of the things that are in there. I needed help. I needed a guide, uh, especially with that early part of Genesis. One of those guides was uh, Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist who came up with a way to reconcile Genesis with 
um, uh, with our understanding of, um, of science. And he wrote several books on this, and I read several of them. Uh, it's not a perfect match in my view, but it was good enough that I could reconcile Genesis with, uh, uh, with science. And so another big breakthrough that I had at this time, uh, something else I read, I don't remember exactly when, um, that finally woke me up to a new point. Uh, the history of how things were created might not actually be the point of Genesis 1. Um, so it might actually be that, you know, God called creation good. He, it, there's this phrase, and God said that it was good six times in the first half of Genesis 1. Okay, maybe that's the point <laughs> of Genesis 1. And, and so, yeah, so I don't know why I didn't see this earlier, but perhaps I just didn't want to. Um, so this led to a new revelation for me. Maybe the Bible doesn't have to be taken as correct, you know, as factually correct everywhere. Um, and again, Ginger brought me a long way on this uh, path. She reads a lot of fiction books. And many of those books she reads focus on deep issues about uh, human nature and the tough dilemmas that we go through. Um, and it really makes the readers think about, you know, how, you know, think about your worldview and how you deal with controversial issues. Um, and the Bible has some parts like this too. Uh, for example, there are many scholars who think that the book of Daniel uh, is a work of fiction. I tend to believe them. Um, so, so yeah, to me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't exist and didn't get tossed into the furnace. But same thing with the title character for me. Daniel didn't exist, didn't get tossed into the lion's den. But that doesn't mean that I should toss out the whole book of Daniel. Uh, there are a lot of things that we can learn from there. Uh, for instance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, what was their crime? They didn't bow down uh, to worship the, the local king as God. They were different. They did something different. They were an outsider. Uh, and so I think that, you know, one thing that we can learn about this story, uh, and, and by the way, Daniel's crime is very similar to that. Uh, one thing we can learn about this story is um, the poison of jealousy and rivalries. Uh, that, that there were other forces there that, that said, no, these three, you know, no, don't just let them be, punish them. Uh, and so... Uh, so there was that. Uh, there's also the promise of God's love in the face of adversity. The angel was in the furnace with him and, uh, and down in the lion's den. Um, uh, so when times are tough, it reminds us that we have that advocate with us. Uh, and we learn all this not because these stories are true, but because they reveal a truth uh, about, about how we um, should live. So I stopped reading the Bible for the how answers of physics and changed it over to the why uh, questions of human nature. Um, and uh, specifically this, you know, so why does God want us to know this story? Thank you, Pastor Judy Shipman. <laughs> um, the accompanying questions then for me were, you know, who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? And what were the circumstances uh, around that? Um, and I also try and read what's around it in the Bible now uh, far more. Every, you know, really... Read the Bible in context with itself and its original times so that we can put it into context for us now. Uh, so, but really understanding that, that other way is, is much, uh, is, 
definitely needed um, in order to think about these confusing stories that are in there. Um, so somewhere along the way, I formed the hypothesis that it's better to be a practicing Christian than not. Uh, and the experiment was on myself. <laughs> not exactly repeatable and controllable, uh, but, but, you know, it's something. Um, and by the way, this experiment is still going on. <laughs> um, you know, and so far the evidence outweighs the hypothesis, or, uh, you know, is, is in favor of the hypothesis. Um, some of that evidence, uh, strong, deep friendships. An awesome family. I love my job. I love my life. I'm a positive person. Uh, yeah, I like who I am. Um, part of having a scientific approach to Christianity is, uh, you know, that science involves changing that hypothesis. And that's happened to me too, um, especially my working definition of what it means to be a Christian. I had never heard of centered set, bounded set until I met Emily. <laughs> Yeah, but it was you who, yeah, anyway, yeah, the two of you, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that, that whole concept. Um, so there's a, a Sunday school song. I never sang this, but I read about it in a book. Uh, thank you, Philip Yancey. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside, on which side are you? Is it people heard of this uh, thing before? Some are nodding. You, you might have sung this. Yeah, there's a bounded set for you. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah. So the centered set really resonates with me. Yeah, and so I've adopted that into, into the definition of Christianity. Um, it means that we can be diametrically opposed on some issues, yet we're still moving towards the same thing. And because we can be diametrically opposed, another thing that I've realized is that we don't, I don't have to convince you that I'm right. right. It's okay if we disagree about some issues, because we might be moving in the same direction, uh, you know, for the most part, but, uh, you know, but on these two, on that particular thing, I'm okay with, you know, with not trying to convince you. So this whole sermon that I'm saying, it may not resonate with you, and you might just say, yeah, thanks, Mike. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I, I say I'm a positive person, but I do have some pet peeves. You know, everybody does. We're all human. Um, one of them, well, I've already mentioned it. It's the dishwasher. <laughs> you know, um, I, I still, when I go up and, and open the dishwasher and things aren't packed optimally, I twinge a little. <laughs> um, yeah, and anyone can relate to that. But it, but I only, you know, it only lasts a moment now. Um, you know, through through science and its and its emphasis on accepting other ways of thinking and Christianity, especially the spiritual practice of meditation. Uh, I think I've come to, to be able to, to move past that. And, uh, you know, people have said, you know, based on my positivity and calmness and things, they say, Mike, you've got your shit together. Yeah. And I say, no, actually, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not that I have my, you know, so to borrow a phrase from my coworker's office, um, thank you, Aaron Ridley, uh, I let that shit go. Yeah. yeah, it's not that I have it together, it's that I don't care about the little things. And I'll let that, you know, I'm like, okay, dishwasher, it's okay. <clears throat> we'll move on. Um, and so, so I don't let the little things bug me, but the big things, we do need to care about the big things. And uh, we often confuse big and little. And so I think we need to focus on the big things. And so for me, what are those big things? The Bible actually tells us one of those big things. Um, right out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, 
he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? You know this little quote that I'm about to say. The entire law and prophets can be summed up as this. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second commandment is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't pause. He went straight in from saying, you know, you need to love the Lord. And then people are saying, Lord's invisible. How do I do that? And immediately answered the question that people were forming in their heads. Love your neighbor. That's how you serve the Lord. Uh, And so, uh, so that's what we're called to do. And then elsewhere, he explains who your neighbor is. It's not just your actual neighbor, which can be hard enough. But it's your acquaintances. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not just your acquaintances, it's strangers. It's not just strangers, it's the outcast and marginalized, especially the outcast and marginalized. He goes back to that many times. It's not just them, it's even those that hurt you. Yeah, even those that hurt you. So, this big thing, it's hard. I'm still working on that. But I also think that neighbor doesn't actually stop with people. I think it extends to nature too. Because again, go back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. What's the first thing that he did over and over and over? Say that creation is good. Declared it good. So I think that that's a, a, a big part of loving your neighbor is also extending it to creation. And I'm really glad that uh, Blue Ocean Faith Ann Arbor is a science-friendly church. So science-friendly doesn't mean applying the scientific method to how you go about living your life or, you know, experiencing Christianity. That's just my own little odd quirk. Um, What I really think it means is is taking modern science and scientific discovery as a gift from God and nature as a gift from God, just like we take our personal relationships as a gift from God. So in Genesis and throughout the Bible, we're called to be stewards of creation. Um, We can... We're called to use it, but not abuse it. And, but we do abuse it. Several different ways. Here are a couple. Mountaintop removal mining. It is what it sounds like. We've been chopping the top off of Appalachia to get at the layer of coal. Like the whole mountain. Toss it into the stream bed next to it. Um, there are places in the ocean where currents converge, and, uh, and we now have... Uh, these, um, these uh, floating collections of buoyant plastic waste. Tar sands in northern Canada, vast swaths of northern Canada are now uninhabitable because we've dug up the, the oil trapped in the dirt and uh, the herds of caribou can't live there anymore. Um, ocean's acidity level is rising and slowly killing the coral polyps in the Great Barrier Reef and elsewhere around the world. And we've broken the sky several times. Our most recent is carbon dioxide and methane, greenhouse gases. Um, But we also had CFCs and acid rain and smog in big cities uh, to add to that too. Um, So I think that that we have to be the Lorax, that we have to speak for the trees. And the Suomi swans and Barbaloots too, but you know. Um, But we have to know that, you know, when we make choices in our lives, that those have environmental impacts and we should be uh, thinking about that along our way. Uh, And and when it's it's time to speak out. 
So just like we're called to stand in solidarity with marginalized people, uh, I think that we're called to stand in solidarity with the environment. Uh, and to put a name on it, be an environmental ally. Yeah. And I hope that we hear that word uh, from Ken and Emily again in the future. Um, so back to the Lorax. Uh, at the very end, uh, the boy is standing with the Onceler, uh, and, and he's standing on this pile of rock with this word in front of him. You remember? Unless. And so the little quote uh, from that is, you know, Onceler d didn't figure it out uh, until just then. He says, but now, says the Onceler, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And that passage really spoke to me yeah. right there. Um, and so as I found my way to embracing Christianity, again, because I had lost it there, um, I also embraced environmentalism, uh, motivated by that faith. Yeah. And so I, I could be wrong. I'm wrong a lot. <clears throat> but I think that we are uh, called to speak up for those with no voice, uh, just like the Lorax. For our meditation time, I'd like to have us have some meditation time. Uh, I'd like to focus on Genesis 1 and those words that we kept saying, and God saw that it was good. So I'd like to ask you to get comfortable. Sit back, take a few deep breaths. You can keep your eyes open or closed, whatever is more comfortable for you. And I'd like for you to picture a place in nature where you find calmness serenity, happiness. Picture a place in nature where you find calmness, serenity, and happiness. And let your whole self become immersed in this comfort. And just relax. And I'm going to repeat, and God saw that it was good throughout the next two minutes. And God saw that it was good. 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 Thanks.
and go out into the world and make it a better place.